My name is Thomas, and I'm going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode 6, so if you're just joining us, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story set in a fantastical land, it may not be the best experience to multitask while you listen. We're recording in our respective homes, safely distanced as the world finds its way out of a pandemic. There is no music, and there are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are alone, you and I, in a pale desert, a merciless tundra, with only the occasional beat of hooves to disturb that great, vast emptiness. This is the Oligur. Gemogen dashes through the woods, leaping from fallen logs to mossy stones with her usual grace made clumsy by the desperate urgency in her step. Alt lags behind, tearing through thorny shrubs and low-hanging branches as his boots sink into the loam with every footfall. The trees appear to flicker and dance in the light of the living pyre, as if they are about to burst into flames themselves. Gemogen casts a desperate look back, just as the thing roars, a strangled, discordant joining of screams. Alt stumbles and falls. <clears throat> Gemogen nearly collides with the tree as she turns and closes the distance between them. She extends a hand. Alt takes it, and she pulls him to his feet and into another mad dash. So our plan is to outrun it, Alt gasps. Gemogen glances to the left. It's still there. The red-mouthed man watches them from the shadows. He doesn't appear to move, but nonetheless keeps pace with them. Whenever Gemogen looks for him, he is just ahead and to one side. Yes, he's still there. You just had to give the pale priest your little talisman. Gemogen's eyes flash with the reflection of the incoming flames as she wheels on alt. The eye of Bakyashil is no... Little talisman. Alt's breath is ragged. Though powerful in frame, he cannot match the Thar's endurance. Do you think that thing somehow summons the pyre? Gemogen stops. She fixes her eyes on the red-mouthed man. He stands perhaps a dozen steps away, his dark eyes glittering. The blood seems to shiver over his jaw in the dancing light of the fire. Yes, you're right. She unsnaps a hand axe from its sheath and advances deliberately upon the figment. Alt comes skidding to a stop in a spray of earth. He looks from Gemogen to the maleficent inferno behind them. A tree splinters into charred matchsticks halfway up, and its crown collapses into the flames as the living pyre smashes through it. Far too close. Gemujin? This ends now. Gemujin hefts her axe above her head and strides towards the red-mouthed man. Her muscles tense, ready to bring the blade down upon his slick, impassive visage ready to cleave his skull in twain. 
but then she stops. Her arm shakes. Her eyes lock with his, face to face. Kneel. The word is an echoing cacophony in Gemogen's ears. Her knees buckle. She falls forward. The axe drops from her hand and clangs off of a boulder. The living pyre roars. Gemogen! Gemogen looks up at the red-mouthed man. Her whole body vibrates, convulsing against the imposed stillness. The red-mouthed man smiles. The canopy overhead ignites with orange flames as the pyre of Keruchar explodes towards them. Alt hooks Gemogen under her armpits and drags her upright, lurching away. Alt watches a flaming mass of sharpened staves burst through the canopy of leaves and descend with deadly force towards the space where Gemogen had been. To Gemogen's eyes, the red-mouthed man still stands there. As if in slow motion, he turns his face to watch her be pulled away. Then he winks out of existence, and the staves stab into the forest floor where he and she had been, with a sound like chopping meat. Life returns to Gemogen's legs, and she kicks against the ground, she places a hand on Alt's shoulder and extricates herself from his grip, taking her own weight again. The living pyre crackles placidly, as if unsure of its next move. From the east, the bell rings. A whistle of wind rattles the leaves around them. The staves shudder vertical, then are blown into the gray sky like a volley of burning arrows. And so, the Thar and the Cartographer Prince are once more bathed in silence. Yochi walks back to Golgyuk feeling quite removed from his own body. In less than 24 hours, he had seen a cruel vision of his uncle, spoken with a lady in a lake, and been instructed to seek counsel with a dragon. In stories... Gleeman would sometimes say, the hero wondered if he was going insane, or something like that. But Yochi had no such doubts. He placed a foot in a stirrup and swung himself into the saddle. He'd heard tales of dragons. Some were evil creatures that grew mighty in the age of power that followed the Iconomachy, and many of these were slain by angels, knights, or demigods. Then there were the golden dragons of the West, supposedly good-natured and apparently a bit dull-witted creatures that were even trained for riding by the Sabura, warrior nobles of Leun. Yochi had never heard of a Gadazar, yet somehow he guesses this dragon will share more in common with the former sort than the latter. Yochi leaves the Lake of Spells and rides Golgyuk into the hills to the southwest, the sky has turned from gray to blue, but the sun has not yet emerged over the great ridge of the caldera. They crest the first hill, and a rare breeze brushes Yochi's cheek, 
He raises a hand to stroke the stubble on his jaw. He hasn't shaved since they entered the Vale of Ways. Directly ahead, visible now for the first time, is the hill Cleo told him of. She'd never seen it herself, but apparently Gadazar had described it to her. Instead of ruddy earth and prickly vegetation, this hill is an iron gray. Composed entirely of smooth stone, there is no more question of its artifice than the painted castle. It's no taller than the hills that surround it, but certainly wider. An almost imperceptible spiral of smoke rises from it. The Forge of Unrana. The Hollow Hill. Yochi spurs Golgyakon and they ride towards the granite dome. An archway comes into view at the base of the hill, a dark tunnel within. Yochi slows Golgyak to a trot, and they ride into the dim space within. Golgyuk's hooves clop loudly against the stone floor. It's not as dark as Yochi expected. His eyes begin to adjust as they enter a wide antechamber, lit by torches that flank the tunnel they entered by. Not an antechamber, in fact, but a carved stable. Somehow reminiscent of the one at the castle, there are three stalls on the left and five on the right. Had there been eight stalls at the castle as well? Ahead, the tunnel continues into the depths of the hill. Yochi dismounts and ties Golgyuk up in one of the stalls. The horse snorts nervously. Yochi places a hand atop Golgyuk's muzzle and lets it rest there gently until the animal's breathing calms. It had been a long morning of riding. Yochi ventures on alone. The tunnel is regularly lit by torches in deep alcoves, so that the flames themselves are not visible until he is almost between them. Only for a moment does Yochi wonder at how the torches had kept burning all these years. It barely cracked the top five most wondrous magics of the past few days. Yochi smiles at the humor of this. He counts the torches as he passes them. One, two, three. Then the tunnel abruptly runs into another passageway, a dim wall before him. Left or right? Yochi goes left. He counts torches and alcoves. One, two. The tunnel curves gently, perhaps following a path concentric to the hill itself. Three, four. Instead of coming in pairs, the torches are only set in the inner wall of this passage, once again creating the illusion of light without source until Yochi reaches each alcove. Five. The wall to Yochi's right comes to an end, and the ceiling slopes suddenly away. Yochi's eyes follow it up and away into a dizzying space. He sways and catches himself on the wall to his left. Thank the stars, that's still there. His eyes travel across the vast hemisphere above. A column of dust and smoke is illuminated like a pillar by the pinhole chimney at the apex of the dome, Yochi follows it down to a hulking apparatus of dark iron and stone, the internals of which give off a dim red glow. There is no direct path to the forge visible. The vault's floor is littered with great piles of... The first word that comes to Yochi's mind is 
junk. From the fables he's heard of dragons, he supposes he ought to call it treasure, and upon a second glance he has no doubt about the incomprehensible value of this hoard. But it is not exactly a glittering sea of gold. Teochi's right, there is a great pile of ancient wooden furniture, stacked with increasingly creative chaoticism into a steep tower, several heads high. Yochi makes out a gilt armoire, balanced precariously on just two of its clawed feet, between a Bombay dresser and a mahogany throne etched all over with engravings too intricate to make sense of at this distance. To Yochi's left is an array of larger-than-life statues, humanoid in general shape but strange in physiology, a three-eyed giantess with curved blades in place of hands, a thick-set mountain of a man, arms and shoulders armored with sharp scales. Several others are draped in heavy brown cloths, powdered with gray ash. The nearest to him is covered but for a hand, extended towards him in supplication, crouched so as to be on his level, its face and body obscured. Around the statue's feet, Dark bronze coins glint ever so slightly, each about the size of a spyglass lens. On mass, they slope into a mountain of metal that consumes the statue's whole. How many more were buried beneath? Yochi shivers at the thought. These and the other mounds form a sort of maze or labyrinth through which to navigate, Yochi makes his way cautiously forward. Feeling suddenly very exposed, his skin buzzes with adrenaline and his hair stands on end. How foolish must he look in his wool caftan and lambpin? Should not a true adventurer bear a weapon of some kind? Yochi snorts derisively. He casts his eyes about and sees a pile of cruel-looking weapons and armor, a jagged sword with a shark's tooth pommel, a war axe, blade still crusted with, well, better not to examine too closely, and the staff of a polearm, buried in a mass of damaged breastplates, its haft a smooth spiral of metal, the likes of which Yochi has never seen before. He steps towards it, and places a hand upon the grip, surprisingly warm to the touch. With a short exhale, he pulls it from the mound, the breastplate chinking in response. A spear with a leaf-bladed head of gold. It is shockingly light in his hands, despite being constructed completely out of metal. Yoti has no idea how it might have been made. Was the shaft somehow hollow? He turns slowly still examining the spear, but his foot lands upon a plate-mail greave, and it skids out from under him. The greave scrapes loudly across the stone floor as Yochi falls backward. A clang echoes across the dome as Yochi's shoulder drives a blunted mace into a metal shield like a gong. Yochi breathes quickly. His heart gallops in his chest. He clutches the spear to him, his shoulders smarting with pain as the echoes die around him. 
What fool disturbs me? Yochi's whole body tenses. His blood shrieks like wind in his veins. From beyond the forge, some part of the darkness on the far side of the vault undulates and moves, knitting itself together from shadows into something enormous, something with wings that flap once, sending a wave of air through Yochi's robe. That something advances out of the black, blacker than black itself. Yochi strangles a cry of fear in his throat. The dragon circles the pillar of light. A single yellow-amber eye catches a reflection in the gloom, far away, but very clearly coming to rest upon Yochi. Ah, a brave adventurer. Yochi laughs. <laughs> the dragon stops. Explain your mirth. He can't help himself. Yochi's body is shaking, what part terror and what part hysterics he can't quite tell. He places a quivering hand upon the hilt of a sword and pushes himself to his feet, a ragged chuckle sputtering from his lungs. If anything... I'm a scared adventurer. I didn't want any of this mystery, danger. I liked hearing stories of great heroics. I didn't want to live them. Yoshi looks at the spear, shuddering in his hands. I'm no adventurer. I'm just the wagon boy. Does the wagon boy have a name? I... Yes. Barun Vase Yochi. And do you know what you hold in your hands, Barun Vase Yochi? A spear? It is one of the twin spears made for the Morning Star and the Planted Hammer. Before the Cataclysm, it belonged to Yabashmatir. Yochi blinks. Do you want me to put it down? It is the dragon's turn to laugh. A belching rumble like the cough of a volcano, which suddenly pitches higher to a maniacal klaxon. <laughs> The dragon leaps suddenly forward with the fluid movement of a panther. Yochi starts in fear. The dragon's head now looms nearly above him. Huge. Why shouldn't you keep it? You are more a man presently than any of the gods. Yochi is so scared that these words wash over him without him thinking much about them, or how nonsensical they seemed. Trembling, he unties the feedback at his hip with one hand. And what about this? He withdraws the oblong rock he tripped over in the castle stables. I don't know what it is, but I have a feeling you will. The dragon peers at it. Then he growls. <sighs> I almost didn't recognize it at first. It's filthy. Is it? Yoshi scratches at it with a finger. It's true. Flakes of black earth curl under his nail. So, you seek the lost gods? No. I, I mean, yes, Gimogen seeks the lost gods, but I want... He hesitates. Cleo, in the lake. She said you could see the truth of... of curses and such things? Cleo Ben Izara steered you right. I see the engines of magic 
as clearly as you might see a wheel turn. Good. He takes a deep breath. I want you to free me from the red-mouthed man. Katu helps Narasat down the stairs to the courtyard of the painted castle. The journey to the belfry and back has left them with a powerful hunger. It cannot be a coincidence. Katu shakes his head distractedly. What cannot? The burnt bell, the impaled god, and the living pyre first seen in Cella Celestia, and now here. As they step onto the charcoaly black earth of the courtyard, the bell tolls loud above them. Katu jumps, and Nereset shrinks against a pillar. The sound is incredible. It seems almost to shake the castle itself on each great boom of clapper against bow. On the third clang, Katu remembers the eye of Bakyashil. He scrambles it from his robe and holds it tight against his chest. Nereset presses their back to the pillar opposite Katu, their eyes seeking. From the stables, they can hear the oxen grunting and mooing. The bell rings seven times, then falls silent. Katu steadies his breath. That was startling? You're telling me, a voice says from the center of the courtyard. Katu jerks around, extending his arm to place the eye of Bakyashil between him and the plinth. At the top of the great marble block, a woman's head has emerged, her dark hair gleaming with droplets of water, as if she'd been spritzed by a spring shower. She is almost gaunt, with deeply set eyes and paper-white skin stretched over her cheekbones. I've heard many a bell in my time, but never one quite so threatening as that. Katu's arm shakes. Who? How? Wh what are you? Cleo makes a face. Rude. Yochi said you were a priest. I am Cleo ben Izarus, warrior of the stars and woman who sticks her head into basins. And you must be Katu. She turns her eyes to the Thar. And you, Nereset. How do you know us? I've got a message for you. From Yochi. A message? Yochi sent you? He asked me to help you. There's a thin pool of water from the Lake of Spells at the top of this plinth. This should be fun. I'm going to teach you how to do something I've always wanted to try. Out of the woods at last, Gemogen and the cartographer break into the Sea of Turum Car. The morning sun lends some warmth to the blue-gray grass. It sways menacingly, as if the field was one great organism lying in wait. What now? I imagine tracking Golgyuk did not remain a top priority while we fled for our lives. Gemogen laughs, only a bit coldly. No, indeed. She scans the sea of grass. Surely he'd make for some kind of landmark, as we discussed at first camp. The Lake of Spells, or the Forge, I mean. Unless he means to ride out through the tunnel again and freeze himself to death on the tundra. She shakes her head. No, I don't believe Yochi would take Golgyuk if he was seeking death. If I know Yochi, I'd guess the lake. Alt places a hand against the pouch containing his journal. Or, might he not be seeking out some artifact to cure himself? I rather think he'd go to the forge first. Gemogen gives Alt a hard look. 
And of course, there's the supposed hiding place of your first history. Oh, don't do that. We each have our own reasons for being here. Except Narasad, I suppose, who seems to be in it purely for recreation. Gemogen scoffs. I nearly forgot what a dense people you Elgin are. I suppose it's one of those things we civilized people could never understand. Gemogen looks away. A Thar knows what a Thar knows. She murmurs. Come now, it's even odds. And besides, where do you think you'll more likely find one of those jade coins you and Katu are after? Fine, we'll check the forge first. But remember, you'd have the same luck as Yochi if you tried to escape this place on your own. Don't think I'd forgotten, Alt grumbles. And with that, the pair sets out across the grassland to the south. In the courtyard, Katu balances on the edge of the plinth. Very good, Cleo says. Now, pass your hand over the water again. Katu passes his hand over the surface of the water. Cleo's face ripples and disappears in the swirl below Katu's palm. It is replaced by a dark image, hard to make sense of at first. Unlike the image of Cleo Benizaris, the scene vibrates and runs, Katu thinks, as if he were looking at it through a heavy rain. Two torches flame red and orange against a faraway wall of craggy stone. The warm tones from the torchlight mixing against the base of the wall with a green haze that emanates from somewhere below. He looks back at Nariset. The Thar leans forward. Well? Katu looks back at the two torches. He rocks back and forth. He takes a deep breath. His muscles tense. But in the moment before he lunges forward, the image ripples and distorts like bubbling glass blown away in a wind, replaced by Cleo's hand and face. Katu falls forward and catches himself with his hands in the dry edges of the plinth. Well done, Cleo says. Oh, you all right? I told you, you won't fit through the basin here. I heard you the first time. Well, I think you're ready. Now, listen, Gadazar is a hoot and a half. I can't get enough of him, honestly. But he has tried to kill me twice since we embarked upon our repartee. Twice? He's an ancient dragon who's lived since before the dawn of history, according to him anyway. His mind works differently than yours or mine. Be as respectful as you can, and whatever you do, don't bring up his mother. His what? Okay, good luck. I hope your friend figured out what was wrong with him. Wait! The water ripples. The two torches flicker back into view. Nariset presses their hands against the edge of the plinth. With a grunt, they push themselves up next to Katu and swing their legs up to rest along the rim. All right, pale priest. Let's face the dragon. Katu looks back at the false reflection. He lifts one foot over the thin layer of water that had hidden itself upon this plinth, and he closes his eyes. He leans forward and lets gravity take him. The attraction of the earth pulls him bodily into the water. He falls through the plinth and stumbles out of the gentle curtain of a waterfall beyond. Katu's stomach drops and drops again as gravity shifts a quarter turn from one side of the water to the other. The water from the fall flows quickly out of the pool and into a channel that runs down one side of the hallway. 
The two torches still shine before Katu, illuminating the passage wall with a ruddy glow. Phosphorescent green crystals ring the pool, providing an eerie supplemental light to everything. Katu turns and looks back through the curtain waterfall, the flow of liquid miraculously fine. Through it, he can see a square of gray-blue sky framing Nariset's brown face. He reaches through the fall and feels Nariset take his hand. Then he pulls them through the water into the pool next to him. It's strange. I barely even feel wet. Well, except for my boots. Like running through a light rain. Nariset agrees. Katu opens his mouth to speak again, but Nariset raises a finger to their lips. Shh! Did you hear that? From somewhere down the stone passageway, there rolls the rumble of an incomparably deep voice. Katu helps Nariset out of the pool. Nariset pulls off their gutals and leaves them to drip by the ledge. Following Mathara's lead, Katu takes off his wet boots as well. Then they creep down the passage, following the stream of enchanted water. Free you from the red-mouthed man. The dragon sounds intrigued. I want to live my life without fear. I want to go home and sit with friends, without monsters carrying them off or buildings crashing down around me. He looks at the odd disc in his hand, caked in hard dirt, its true nature a mystery quite alien to his own. Let the others dream of adventure. I just want the nightmares to end. He drops the rock. It bounces off one edge, then rolls to a stop on the stone floor of the vault. Yochi looks up again at the dragon. My Uncle Catter told me it was a curse. And you trust your uncle in such matters? Well, I don't know if it was really him. One of our party, he, he performed a chromament. The dragon hisses and prowls around Yochi in a circle. <sighs> the chromament? You have brought to my doorstep a man of the imperialist heavens! In spite of his fear, Yochi bristles. Well, I don't think I have to remind you. There was a bit of a vacancy left in the world. Gadazar leans in close, so close that Yochi can feel the heat and smell the brimstone emanating from his nostrils. Yochi scrambles backwards up the pile of arms and armor to get away, but the ancient creature's muzzle advances until they are nearly nose to nose. Don't trust new gods, Yochi, any more than dead ones. The chromament is just as likely to show you demons as angels, and I dare say your uncle aligns more with the former. Katu and Nariset follow the channel of water until its course turns and flows down a slope towards the smoking forge at the center of the vault. Nariset has to clap a hand over Katu's mouth when he sees the dragon, his sharp inhale stopped in his throat before it can escape as a yelp. They both stand, Round-eyed for a moment longer, Nariset's dark hand pressed around Katu's jaw, stunned out of their senses by the sight before them. Yochi, atop a mound of dark treasure, once again wielding a spear against an unfathomable foe. 
the great behemoth of a reptile, staring him in the eyes. When they finally remember how to relax their muscles, Nariset pulls away their hand and crouches, crawling forward on their hands to favor their wounded leg. Katu follows, low to the ground. They find a hiding spot in a tower of ancient marble reliefs, stacked like dominoes in the dim recesses of the vault. They watch in horror as the dragon continues. You smell of church yourself. I suppose you have the chromament to blame for that. Those candles they love so much reek of ministerial sanctimony. I'm sorry, I, I was just looking for answers. You met not with answers, but your damaged soul. There is a very bad magic about you indeed, cast in blood. And blood magic is most effective against your own. So it, it is a curse? You're saying my uncle cursed me? Gadazar growls. <sighs> the red-mouthed man is not a curse, and your uncle is no Thar witch. The red-mouthed man is a puppeteer, an aspect of the invader god Erdogan. His influence affects you at all times, but the closer the red-mouthed man, the stronger the strings pull upon your mind. Some several treasure mounds back, Gemogen and Alt steal into the great house of the forge by the same path Yochi took. Nariset and Katu had been prepared for the dragon. Gemogen and Alt are not. They freeze in shock for too long, and count their blessings that the dragon's tail is to them, before finding their own hiding places. Neither Yochi nor the dragon sense their presence. I, I don't understand. Your uncle traded your soul, boy. Your free will. He's in the hands of Erdogan now. But I... I don't feel like I'm under his control. The strings pull gentle enough most times. I expect you've grown used to them. And even the marionette retained its own weight. But when the red-mouthed man manifests before you, then his influence is undeniable. And then it is that the ghost of Keruchar senses his presence like a virus in the body. The living pyre. As long as you walk in holy places with these strings attached, you're a danger to the soul of the world. When the strings tighten and the red-mouthed man visits, Gerujar's last vow comes after you. What was it that my uncle traded upon? How can he have come to own my life without me giving it to him? He asserted your life was worthless. The least of all lies. That without a devil inside you, you would amount to nothing but dirt and ash. Yochi's arms tremble. He tightens his grip on the spear. So what if my life is small? I liked my small life. Well enough at any rate. He thinks of his days driving the ox cart through the city. His hay pallet bed in the keep's cellar. Sharing a pint of ale with the other stable hands and mopping sweat from his neck with a rag dipped in cold water. Surely, even a small life can't be stolen. Gadazar's nostrils fume. As long as your life was deemed secondary to all others, so your uncle proclaimed, then your soul could be traded as if it were free for the taking. His life against yours, and his the far greater. So the sale of your soul was leveraged. Just on my uncle's word? 
All deals are words, and magic of this kind is just power stacked upon a word. If your life were bought in exchange for another's, your uncle would be proven over-leveraged. But that has not happened. The red-mouthed man still grips you. And here you stand, asking to be freed. Gadazar's prowl comes to an end. His black-scaled sinews flash purple and orange in the dim light from the forge. He draws back his head, regarding Yochi solemnly from high above. So now, Yochi the Wagon Boy, it is time for you to die. This was Episode 6 of The Oligar and of Season 2 of Thomas Tells a Story. The show is written and created by myself, Thomas Constantine Moore, and our theme music is by Joe Mendick. Yochi is voiced by Heron Atkins, Gemogen by Molly Griggs, Katu by Jeffrey Omura, Neriset by Alexis Floyd, the cartographer by Heath Saunders, and the voice of Gadazar was provided by guest star Nico Benson. Thank you for listening. We will finish this story in another moon. Hey there, it's me again. If you love this show and want to keep it going, one of the best things you can do is spread the word and tell your friends. You can also follow me on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or Thomas C. Most. And this season, you actually got to influence the events of the story. After episode 5, you voted for Gemogen to face the red-mouthed man, and she nearly died in the doing of it. You voted for Yochi to arm himself with a spear, and so he chose the weapon of Yabash Matir. And last, you chose for him to show Gadazar the strange rock, and so Gadazar learned Gemogen's purpose. Yochi has now learned the true nature of the red-mouthed man, so I'm afraid the choices for episode 7 are somewhat limited. The sun still shines, the rains still drum, but now the red-mouthed man has come. <laughs>